This morning, I thought we would play a little game and see how many of you are, in fact, smarter or as smart as a fifth grader. (laughs) Are you ready? Question number one. The Second Continental Congress chose who to lead the Continental Army. You fill in the who. George Washington. Thank you. That's good. You all knew it. You were just afraid to speak out. Number two. The British troops hired nearly 30,000 troops from Germany to help them fight the colonists. These mercenaries were known as? Very good. You're getting more bold. Number three, the following phrase. We trampled through the mall like a gaggle of geese. We trampled through the mall like a gaggle of geese. Is an example of a simile, a metaphor, personification, or figurative language. Simile. Like or as. Have you heard that before? What would we do without this information? Number four. Which layer of the earth's crust do humans live on? That's a silly question, isn't it? The crust. Okay, which instrument measures air pressure? A barometer. 1,285 rounded to the nearest hundred is what? You're scared to answer, aren't you, for fear? 1,300. 1,285 round to the nearest hundred. 85 is closer to the next hundred, so you round up. See me after church. (laughs) Number seven. This one you really have to pay attention for. We're entering into the world of math. Jane rents ice skates at noon. Some of you are shaking already. Come on now. <laughs> Jane rents ice skates at noon. The charge is $5 for the first hour and 50 cents per quarter hour after that. Her rental charges were $6.50. What time did she return the skates? What did I hear? 145. Is that what somebody said? If not, we'll pretend you are correct. And lastly, what is the mathematical term for the least common multiple of the denominators of a set of vulgar fractions? I'm only going to repeat it one time. What is the mathematical term for the least common multiple of the denominators of a set of vulgar fractions? It's there. It's there. Who said it? Was it a fifth grader? No, it wasn't. Least common denominator. Does that ring any bells? You're trying to add or subtract fractions. You have to make that bottom number be the same. I won't get into all of that this morning. But that's, that is getting close to what I'd like to talk to you about today, this idea of the least common denominator. Not so much in a mathematical way, but in the sense that as Christians, we like to take and add up fractions of truth rather than go for whole truth sometimes. You say, what is he talking about? Well, I believe there's a growing trend within Adventism and the Christian world to find the least common denominator. 
By that I mean we often look for ways and excuses to not give God our best, but rather our least. Just a fraction, if you will. What is the least I can give and still be saved? One half, one quarter, one eighth? Is modesty really a moral issue? Will I really be lost over something so small and so trivial and trite? And this idea is fostered as we look at other people instead of Christ. Well, on Facebook, I saw this church member and they were drinking. Well, I know of an elder that goes out to eat on Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath school teacher, she wears jewelry. Well, 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 well. To which I reply, I'm sorry, but they are not the standard. Yet the least common denominator simply says, if other people, church people that is, are doing it, then it must be okay. Where do we find that idea in Scripture? And this idea only exacerbates in an Adventist ghetto, if you will. Now, when you're the minority, when there's not Adventists everywhere around you, and you're the only Adventist in your place of work or where you live, you feel more of a sense of duty, right? A responsibility to rightly uphold the standard, to be a positive example, if you will, of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. But when everybody around you is Adventist, when we work with Adventists, attend Adventist schools, shop in Adventist stores, go to Adventist hospitals, and even have our own Adventist yogurt. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong, there's benefits, but when we find ourselves in that situation for some reason to stand for moral values can slip a little bit. We're no longer on our guard so much. No longer do we get questions about what weird thing we brought to lunch today. Lentils, what are lentils? And your focus can more easily shift to what everybody else is doing. And the mission is for somebody else to do. That's the church's responsibility. And the thought can prevail that says, if they can do it, why can't I? You know, if we take a quick walk through the Old Testament over and over and over again, we see God's people dealing with the same struggle, the same temptation to be like the world, to return to Egypt, if you will. And one of the first things that goes oftentimes is a desire to conform to the fashion, the styles, customs, and practices of those around them. And so sadly, many churches today, I believe, are sliding on that slippery slope of the least common denominator, looking to others instead of Christ, being more concerned with what is politically correct versus what is biblically correct, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I was listening to a sermon this week that... Uh, Two friends of mine sitting back there near the back, Shane and Jesse Tate, forwarded on to me. It's on Audioverse. If you haven't discovered, discovered Audioverse, there's just hundreds, if not thousands, of Adventist sermons. Good preaching there. And so I thought I'd check it out. This preacher's name is Randy Skeet. 
He's an Adventist evangelist and revivalist from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the title of this particular sermon intrigued me. Do you know what it was? I'll have a diet Pepsi. Hmm. And in his sermon, he talks about Matthew 5, 14, Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. And he contrasts this idea of light and darkness and how they are not at all the same. In fact, they're polar opposites. There is no light in darkness. There is no darkness in light. And his point is that the church should be completely opposite of the world. They should be polar opposites. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 211. The line of demarcation between those who serve God and those who serve Him not is ever to remain distinct. In other words, there should be no confusion as to who's a Christian and who's an unbeliever. Who is dressed for church and who's dressed for the mall. Whose speech suggests contact with Christ and whose speech mimics that of a sitcom. Whose dietary choices suggest contact with Christ? Whose dietary choices suggest contact with this gluttonous world? There ought to be no confusion, he says. The line of demarcation should ever remain distinct. And then continuing on in this quote that he shares, the difference between believers and unbelievers should be as great as the difference between light and darkness. Again, from volume three of Selected Messages. Which means that the world should not be confused. Is he a Christian or is he not? The sad reality is that when people come to church, Skeet offers this. We offer them diet Pepsi. In the world, they have Pepsi. They smoke, they drink, they do drugs, they're homosexuals. That's Pepsi. They sleep around. There's no accountability. That's the life they're accustomed to. They are used to the life of Pepsi, and the church comes along and offers them diet Pepsi. If you go to the movies, just watch animated movies. Don't watch Lord of the Rings. Just watch Shrek. That's diet Pepsi. You understand what he's saying, don't you? You're accustomed to sleeping around. Now just stick to one. That's diet Pepsi. You're a homosexual. Well, just be faithful to one partner. That's diet Pepsi. You used to work on Sabbath, but now you try not to. But if you do, we understand that's diet Pepsi. You're accustomed to rock music in the world. We can offer you Diet Pepsi. We've simply changed the lyrics, but we've kept the beat. Well, we're accustomed to dressing like Hollywood. Can we come to your church the same way? Yeah, just lower your hem by about half an inch. That's Diet Pepsi. We wear our hair and decorate our skin like the rock stars. Is that okay? Yeah, just make sure it's a tattoo of the cross. Diet Pepsi. When what they really need is pure, fresh, living water. Water of life. So what do you think? Is he wrong in his thinking? Should the church look different from the world? 
Should it act different, talk different, spend our time differently, dress differently? Shouldn't I be able to sit at an airport terminal and pick out Christians from those that don't give a rip? And don't get me wrong, my aim is not to be critical of the world. After all, they don't know any better. But as baptized believers, shouldn't we live and act and dress differently? You don't know how many times I've been studying the Bible with an individual about lifestyle issues, and they say, yeah, but I saw a member at your church just last week, dot, dot, dot. I mean, the world's picking up on this. They're the ones saying, why should I go to your church? I see your members at the same places that I go. They party the same way I do, drink the same, dress the same. So why do I need to be like you? Last Sabbath, I spoke to the dangers of clinging to our own righteousness. Today, I want to speak to the dangers of clinging to the world. Because there's a ditch on both sides of the road, isn't there? Last Sabbath, I spoke about how those in the church often feel no need of repentance because of their pious lifestyle. Today, I want to talk about an equal danger, and that's when the church becomes so accepting that it becomes hard to distinguish it from the world. Now, granted, we receive people as they come. But is all we're going to do is offer them Diet Pepsi or call them to a higher standard, offer them a glass of water? Last Sabbath, we looked at the ditch of self-righteousness. Today, I want to look at the ditch of moral meltdown. So if you brought your Bible, and I hope that you did, turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 32, verse 1. Exodus 32, verse 1. And here we have the moral meltdown of God's people. Second book of the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus. We're in chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed, that's when the church members get anxious. There's some kind of a delay. Something went wrong. What are we going to do? And they want to change everything. When Moses, they saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Is this really true? Do they not know where Moses is? I would beg to differ. In fact, the last, the very last people story, we have all kinds of sanctuary and how it was built and all the rest, but the last people story is Exodus chapter 20 which is where God audibly tells them the Ten Commandments, and then it says everyone, while they're watching, no one is missing out on this, while they're watching the next four verses after the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up on the mountain to be with God. Don't tell me you don't know where Moses is. You know exactly where Moses is. You saw him go up the mountain. But verse 2, and Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Where did it come from? 
When fleeing Egypt, the people were so scared of the plagues that they were all going to die, they took everything and just heaped it on the Israelites and said, just take it, go. Get out of here. And God had a purpose in that. They were going to take those things and make a sanctuary. Verse 4. And he received the gold, this is Aaron, from the hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molten calf. Then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. If only the leader would have held the line, refused to compromise, But it's too easy to give the people what they want instead of what they need. Notice they haven't fully rejected God. They just want to worship Him on their own terms. And that's exactly what we see in the the emerging church doing today. We've been studying this in the youth Sabbath school. People like Brian McLaren and Leonard Sweet, Rob Bell, Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, they're all doing away with this idea of judgment and hell, and they're promoting universal salvation, and they're accepting of gay, lesbian, and bisexuals as having clearly stated that they should have full ecclesiastical rights. That means full church rights. If you want to be a pastor, an elder, whatever, that's fine. And in the process... The church is no longer distinguishable from the world. So the emerging church celebrates the Supreme Court ruling this week, despite the fact that the Bible is so clear on the issue. And they say, oh, those pesky six or eight texts, they're abundantly clear, folks. Well, what do you think this verse means? I think it means exactly what it says. But the church is losing its distinguishing characteristics. No, we don't want to reject God. We just want to worship Him on our own terms, on my own terms. And in so doing, the hedge of protection, not for God, but for me, the hedge of protection for me, the safeguard of God's people, that's you and me, is stripped away and is compromised. And look at what happens. Verse 6. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and bought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word there, rose up to play, in Hebrew it's sakak. The same word Mrs. Potiphar used to charge Joseph. This boy came in here to sakak me. Same word used in Genesis 26, verse 8, to describe Isaac caressing Rebekah. And when the king saw them, saw cacking, if you will, the king scratches his head and says, wait a minute, you don't do that kind of thing with your sister. And so they get up early to indulge in revelry and rose up to play. Folks, this is no church social. This is sexual play. And where did they get it from? None other than Egypt. God's people have always been tempted to look to the world to see how to live and how to worship. And here we see it. They rose up to play. Can you imagine the heart of God? Can you imagine the heart of Moses? 
The same people that wanted to stone him in chapter 17, and now Moses having to plead on their behalf. Verse 15. Skipping down the chapter, and Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand, and the tablets were written on both sides, and on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is noise. There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat. But the sound of singing I hear. What kind of worship sounds like war? So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, they saw the calf and the dancing. And so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now Moses is not losing his temper. No, this is symbolic that the covenant with God has been broken so soon after it was made. And so verse 20, we read about how he took the calf and he made it and burned it in the fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Say, drink your God. How powerful is your God now? And verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, do not let your anger be of my Lord become hot. You know the people. It's not my fault. It's the people that they are set on evil. Talk about leadership contrast with Moses. Don't be angry. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And then verse 24, he talks about how he threw this gold into the fire and out popped a calf. Deuteronomy 9.20 says of the same account that Aaron would have been destroyed except Moses begged God to spare his life. And then in verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies... That Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. They're unrestrained. If you have the NIV, it means they're running wild is how they translate it. And it can also mean unclothed and uncontrolled. And so in verse 26, there's a line drawn in the sand. There's no third side, no middle ground. It's decision, decision time. If God is God, worship him. If Satan is God, worship him. That's what the great controversy is all about. Who are you going to worship? And then verse 31 and 32. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin. And we have that dash. It's as if he cannot finish the sentence. If you cannot forgive their sin, choke. You ever had a conversation with somebody and they're trying to finish their sentence and then they just get quiet and the silence does the heavy lifting? Choke. And he regains his composure, I am assuming here, and says, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Do you understand that kind of leadership? This kind of love? 
Moses acting, if you will, as the intercessor for the people, just as Christ is doing now. And then verse 33, and the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel. God was leading them before. No, 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 no. My angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit my punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. I will send my angel. And when Moses tells the people God's response, look at the way they respond now in chapter 33, verse 4. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. The end. There's two lessons, at least two. But we're going to look at two lessons from this passage. The first being a revival of morality always leads to a revival of modesty. A revival of morality always leads to a revival of modesty. Notice that when the people become unclothed, they become uncontrolled. Maybe you remember theme week in school. When I taught high school in Pohnpei, I hated theme week. It was the worst as a teacher because the kids would come in crazy hair and crazy hats and jeans and all the rest instead of their standard uniform, and it completely changed the way they acted, the way they were willing to learn or not learn. It was just a mess. We might as well have just thrown out the whole week and called it vacation. Completely distracted, focused on self. And here, when the people become unclothed, they become uncontrolled. Because modesty is a protective wall for sexuality. Friends, what has happened to the protective wall of modesty today in the world? Is it just me, or are the shorts getting shorter and shorter and shorter? Since when did Britney Spears and Lady Gaga have to teach us that it's in vogue to be to dress and be like a streetwalker. And are we as a church, are we buying into that? I'm amazed at the lack of modesty in our nation. There's a book, Living Into Focus, Choosing What Matters in the Age of Distraction, page 98. I quote this, In 1896, a film called The Kiss outraged moral guardians by showing a couple stealing a quick kiss. Absolutely disgusting, said one critic. Such things call for police action. 1896. By the 1990s, primetime network entertainment offered sexual remarks or behavior every four minutes. From their monitoring of network programs, Lewis Harris and Associates estimated that the average viewer witnesses 14,000 sexual events annually. And nearly all involved unmarried people. By beholding folks, we become changed. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Are you getting a steady diet of this stuff? What's happening to the modesty in our country? And is it affecting our church? Should church be a place where I have to redirect my eyes? 
Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, us men are very visual. God made us that way. But did you know that just by looking, men receive this chemical high from what they see? The little chemical called epinephrine is released, and it can be very addictive. I've had too many men in my office with these issues. And we talk about what it means to bounce the eyes, to guard your mind and your thoughts, to try and starve all of these areas where things are coming in and coming in and coming in. Did you know that just about every book in the New Testament commands us to avoid sexual impurity? In Ephesians 5.3, Paul challenges us by saying there not, must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Not a hint. But what about you, ladies? Are you helping out the men? Paul also said, beware lest someone, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now, I have two daughters age two and six, Lauren and Marianne. And they both already know the term immodest. And it can be rather humorous at times as they continue to go around the house and say, you can't do that, put that back on, that's immodest. <laughs> We've already had these conversations about those shorts are too short, that dress no longer fits you, that shirt is too gapy, I'm sorry. And I realize there's a big difference between talking to your six-year-old and talking to your 16-year-old, but I promise you, whatever you are not telling them as parents, the world is filling in the gaps. But if any group of people should be modest, should it not be the followers of Christ? But too many of us are willing to settle somewhere between paganism and obedience to God. One foot in the church, one foot in the world. We split hairs. We take fractions of truth. We aim for the least common denominator among Adventists. It used to be dress for success. Now it's dress to suggest. No, a revival of morality leads to a revival of modesty. And that's the order. Don't mess up on the order. But a revival of morality leads to a revival of modesty. There is a humbleness. Because let's face it, all things are designed to, all that we've been talking about, are designed to attract attention to me. Right? But when I meet Jesus, he fills my thoughts. When I'm changed, I am humbled. I'm amazed by his grace and his mercy to me. No longer do I want to attract attention to self, but to put it all on him. And that affects even how I dress. How silly is that? It affects it. A revival of morality leads to a revival of modesty. The second lesson, a revival of spirituality leads to a revival of simplicity. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 35. Keep your finger there. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But Genesis 35, first four verses. Here we have revival that comes to the house of Jacob. And then God said to Jacob, Genesis 34, verse 
Did I say verse 5? Verse 1, I'm sorry. 35 verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day in the way which I have, in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Verse 4 So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Here we have a revival of spirituality, and as a result, he's asking for everybody to get rid of the foreign gods. And they dispose of their jewelry. In fact, Jacob buries it in the ground. I don't know about you, but I don't often bury things in the ground that I'm going to access later. It's a symbol of letting it go, isn't it? It's not a male thing, it's not a female thing, it's everybody. And going back to our verse in Exodus 33, our initial story, verse 6. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments by Mount Horeb. That word by in the New King James Version almost always is translated from or from then on. And scholars believe this is a lasting abandonment of their jewelry. That's why the New American Standard Bible translates it this way. So Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Do you see it? And archaeologists say when tracing the children of Israel, they find very little jewelry. So you're trying to say there's no jewelry in the Bible? No, I'm not. In fact, Angel Rodriguez, he wrote a rather comprehensive book called Jewelry in the Bible. There you go. And he deals with four reasons for jewelry in Scripture. One is for status, crown or garments of royalty, and we see that in various places. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a baby that's taken and it's decked with jewelry. This is status jewelry. She is the queen. Second Kings chapter 11, the king putting on his crown, again, status jewelry. Another reason is for authority, for the royal Fam or for uh, royal or family signet rings. You remember those rings that appear in stories? And you put it on your finger. Daniel chapter 6 is one case. Daniel in the lion's den and he puts his seal, his ring, his signet. Sign of his authority and his power. Same with the prodigal son. He comes back and he gets the ring on his finger to reinstate him as a son. Gives him back his authority. Third reason, for spiritual leadership. You remember the high priest in Exodus 28? Twelve semi-precious stones were on his chest on an ephod. Only the high priest could wear it. And then the fourth category for ornamentation, public display by men and women. And we'll come back to this one. But the Bible recognizes that jewelry is not intrinsically evil, in heaven, in fact, God will place a crown of victory on our heads, even though just moments later we'll cast them at his feet. In heaven, the streets will be paved with gold. 
In Jerusalem, the 12 foundations of the walls are 12 semi-precious stones. God made them. He has a right to them. Minerals are not moral agents. The danger is located in the heart of the wearer, not the object itself. The Bible portrays ornamental jewelry as incompatible with the personal adornment of the people of God. Why? For very simply, it's vanity. It's vain, a symbol of human pride or arrogance. The purpose it serves is to draw attention to self. Is that not a principle that we reject? Turn with me. We're done with Exodus. Turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3. Verse 18 to 23. Here the people of God have apostatized again. And here we read in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 18. In that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, the rings, the nose jewels, the festival apparel and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. You see, when revival breaks out in the tribe of Jacob, the ornaments come off. It's a moral issue. At Sinai, ornaments come off at God's command. It's a moral issue. No more jewelry until they apostatize here. In what we've just read. And then we come to Jesus. Jesus could have worn a hundred crowns. But instead we see one robe. No coins, no jewels, no house or car, nothing. And here we see the divine principle of moral simplicity. And then the challenge comes. Follow me. And then we see in the New Testament church embrace his standard of their Lord. Lies read that to us this morning. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adornment be outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. For that reason, when revival breaks out in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it comes off. Man values the outward appearance, but God values the heart. I mean, that's the whole point. It's not whether or not you got jewels or don't have jewels. It's about a heart issue. It's not about rules or checklists or legalism. It's who has your heart. And it pains me when I see friends and family members and people that know better. They've been raised in the church. They're not just new converts coming into the church. Fine, take your time. When God tells you to take it off, you take it off. But when their whole life, and then all of a sudden I see in a picture... It's as if they have this little mini rebellion. Oh, it's just a small thing. It's a nothing. Is it? 
He that is faithful with the little things will be faithful with much. Oh, I'll stand at the end. When it's the Sabbath issue, when it's life or death, I'll stand. But don't bother me with these little things. Don't be so legalistic. Now, granted, I'm not telling you to go tap on people's shoulder or rip it out of their ears. Don't you dare. If you do, I'll staple it in yours. But you, individually, you have to assess and say, where is my heart? Is this vanity? And I'm not just talking about jewelry, folks. How we live our life, how we dress, the clothes that we purchase, how much money we spend, the cars we drive, the houses we live in, the motorhomes we tour around the country, whatever. I realize money is relative. I realize that. And something that would be outlandish for me may be penance for you. That's fine. I'm not concerned with it because I'm not looking to you. I'm looking to Christ. But when I look at him and I see how he lived, it affects how I have to live. Modest simplicity. So what's the point? The point is God calls his people to a counter-cultural life of modest simplicity. Why should executives and designers of the fashion industry dictate how I dress? And some will say, was well, it a matter of personal salvation? I won't be saved if I wear jewelry, if I don't dress modestly. No, you won't be saved unless you embrace Jesus. That's the gospel. However, when you embrace him as your savior, you also need to embrace him as the Lord of your life and be surrendered to him. And when he says, follow me, that includes modest simplicity. Richard O'Phil said it this way, the uniform soldiers wear is not a moral issue. However, it is a life and death issue because it indicates which side they are on. Isn't that clever? Is it the source of the problem? No. But it can be a symptom of a deeper problem. But I challenge you to not make it an issue with everybody else, but look at yourself. And maybe it's not jewelry, maybe it's not clothes, maybe it's something else entirely. And when do you make a change? You make a change when the Holy Spirit impresses upon your heart. It's time. It's time to let it go. It's time to put it away. It's time to make me first in all things. The Holy Spirit must convict. Isaiah chapter 1 they're offering sacrifices. They're saying, look at all these wonderful things we're doing for you. And God says, I abhor your sacrifices. I don't want to hear one more, smell one more sacrifice at all because it's not coming from your heart. That's the whole issue. It's a heart issue. But nobody can judge. Well, I'm glad nobody can judge because that means that Fletcher Academy can't print in their handbook. That means Southern College can't print in their handbook. Yes, nobody can judge, but... A community of faith can choose. And God's people have chosen a lifestyle of modest simplicity to be a countercultural movement with Jesus as our example. In every way, even in his death, his life modeled modest simplicity. And that same Jesus bids to you and to me whatever the issue are you willing in the big stuff and in the very little stuff? Are you willing to follow me?
Dear Lord, in this day and age, we are bombarded by the influence of the world. Without even realizing it, we can see how the culture in which we find ourselves grates on us. And over time, it can redirect our morals, our values, even our wants and our desires. Lord, this morning we want to give you permission to transform us this morning. Help us to form new habits, to put away those worldly influences, to live a life like you did, of modest simplicity. May our beauty come from our inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that is of great worth in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.